Well, it's hard to believe. Well, for some of you, it's not that hard to believe because you've maybe only been coming for a few weeks. But for those who've been coming for a while, it's hard to believe. But it's been four weeks since we sort of left uh, our journey through the book of Philippians. Now, we're going to pick it up today, and then we're going to wrap everything up and be all completely finished with it next week. But this has been 20 weeks, and not the weeks we kind of broke for Christmas and Easter and all that, but 20 kind of weeks looking at this book. And it's been quite a journey. It's been an incredible journey for me because... It's challenged me as a person and as a preacher and as a, as a man of God. It has it kind of turned some of my thinking upside down because what it challenges us to do is it, it challenges us to deal with the entirety of the Word of God, Paul's whole letter. We can't just pick the pieces that we like and skip over the ones that we don't know what to do with. We have walked through every little piece of this text. So those of you that have been coming maybe just since Easter, a little bit of this is going to be foreign, and I'm going to catch you up to speed. But we have spent 20 weeks since October, or right around the middle of October, walking through this book of Philippians in a series that I've simply titled Truly Alive. Because the picture is what Paul's doing is he's, he's challenging the Philippians, this little gathered community of new believers in a town called Philippi, to rethink what it means to live. To kind of turn the idea upside down that living is somehow just drawing breath. And begin to think about living differently. And, and Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is a really interesting one because it's not written like his other letters. The letters to the churches in Galatia and Corinth and some of the others were written to address specific problems, heresies, struggles, issues that those churches were having. But Paul's letter to the Philippians seems to be one out of love. It seems to be one that's driven by his desire for them to live in humility and in mission and in uh, unity together as a church. So I'm going to give an ever-so-brief, tiny little recap to get you caught up to speed with where we are so that these verses today make a little bit of sense. Um, and, so, and then we're going to dive in to kind of where Paul's taking us today. But the letter is really written, the first part of the letter is really written with this idea in mind. As a church, as a church that's struggling with poverty and perseverance and even internal struggle, this sort of small gathered group of believers in a predominantly very predominantly non-Christian area. This letter was written to challenge them to live lives of humility and unity. And Paul takes the first part of his letter and he says, you have to live unified in your mission together. That you're going to have differences of beliefs and how you were raised and all those things, but singular mission as a church is deeply important. So live with humility and live in unity. And he talks about having lives that live and love and reflect Christ to the world. And we look at that picture as a church and what that means for us and how we can live in that same kind of unity and humility. And really the whole first part of the letter is written about that singular mission, about how we are going to go on this sort of movement of following Christ together. The second part of the letter, Paul takes more of a, of a little bit of a theological turn. He says, listen, you're going to come up against all kinds of really bad teaching. There's going to be people out there that are going to try and derail you. They're going to try and sell you lies. They're going to try and tell you that you can believe in other things than Jesus, that you can get to heaven in other ways, that there are other avenues for you to redeem your own life. And so Paul takes a moment, he lays a theological baseline or framework of sorts that says, I want you to build your foundation, right, your Christian life on this foundation. And he lays out some basic biblical truths that we kind of studied and explored. And then he takes a, a little bit of a move and he begins to conclude his letter and he says, okay, so now that we've heard this call to unity and now that we have lived and, and I've sort of given you this theological baseline, it's time to let your life begin to live out those truths. And then the letter takes in his conclusion a very practical turn and it basically says this is how you begin to live out what you say you believe about God. And I talked about it as a sort of a way where that, that moment or that time when our theology, the, the things that we believe about God, right, come in radical collision with the way that we live. That at some point in time, how we live our lives has got to intersect with what we believe about God. 
And that moment is really what Paul's unpacking in the last part of his letter, is not so much the whys, but the hows. How do I begin to live what I say I believe about God? Which is where I think a lot of us spend a lot of our time saying, okay, God, I say I trust you, but how do I really begin to live that out? And it takes a very cerebral kind of turn to say, okay, I want to actually let my life follow the pattern, right, that I believe in my head. And so Paul kind of makes that move, and he, he's kind of wrapping up his letter. And we're going we're gonna to kind of begin that process today, and then we're going to finish it next week as Paul kind of concludes um, this letter. But what he's going to talk about this morning is a little bit of a continuation of what we did right before Easter, which is sort of this mental movement, these things that take place between our ears. And right before Easter, we talked about Paul was telling us that the things that we think about matter. The things that we think about matter. He, ta- he told us about thinking about things that were true and right and noble and praiseworthy and admirable. And we think about those things. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, floods our hearts and our minds and gives us peace. And we explored the importance of filling our mind, not emptying our mind with the things of God. But Paul kind of connects that idea to what we're going to talk about today. Because it's another thing that takes place in between our ears. And that sort of cerebral place that says, God, how do I live out what I believe about you? And it's all around this idea of contentment. And Paul's going to talk a lot about contentment. And contentment's a really interesting idea and word. Because in our English language, in the way that we define it, it sort of means to be like aptly satisfied. Like, I'm content. And it carries a connotation of settling. So, I mean, I'm not real happy, but I'm okay. I'm content with it. So I'll just kind of get on with the getting on. And that's kind of how we define and how we think about contentment. I mean, I'm not just exuberant about what's happening, but you know what? I'm going to survive, and so I'm content. I'm okay. The problem with that is that that's not the biblical picture of contentment at all. The picture of contentment the Bible talks about is one of peaceful satisfaction, one that says, God, you are enough for me. That it's not about settling. It's not about saying, okay, well, this is not what I really wanted, but I'll settle for this. Contentment from a biblical standpoint is really about saying, God, you are all that I ever need. You provide me with peaceful satisfaction, and whatever my circumstance is, I am content. Now, most of us in here, if I ask you if you were content, would probably nod your head. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm, I'm content. I mean, I'm, I'm relatively great with where God is in my life and how things are going. But I think the truth is, is that if I were to really sit down with you, our hearts and our minds betray that. But we want to nod out loud and say... I deeply believe that most of us, even within the figurative walls of the church, are deeply dissatisfied with our lives. Now, I know that sounds pessimistic, but I just think it's true. I read an article recently um, by a guy that was kind of, it wasn't a scientific study, it was more of a conversational polling where he's talking to people about happiness and what makes them happy and if they're happy. And he discovered that about 80% of the people that he talked to were deeply displeased with their life, right? I wouldn't say that out loud, but they were deeply displeased with their life. And he listed a lot of reasons why. But one of the things he said was that the 20% of people that he found that that were happy with their lives, they had one characteristic that seemed to be more in common than any other. More common than than like sex and race and and, uh, socioeconomic status, all those things. And the one factor was purpose. That those folks that had purpose seemed to be more content with their lives. Now, the premise resonated with me, and I think purpose can be defined a bunch of different ways, and we're actually going to get into that a little bit today. But the premise was important to me because I deeply believe that most of us, right, most of us want more out of our life. We are in kind of a constant, perpetual state of longing for more. Like, if I can just get past this, just do this, just have this one thing, 
then everything will work out. If I can just make another $150 a month, I can make all of these ends meet. If I can just not be alone anymore, my marriage would just take this turn, my job would just take this turn. If I could just get out of this old car, then that trouble, that anxiety would be gone. I mean, all those things, those anxieties, those things, those wanting mores, we're in a constant state of perpetual wanting more. Because the idea for us is that the more, whatever that is, that one thing, those two things, they will fix the other things. That if I can just get past this, everything will be okay. But those of you that have had your life in any pattern similar to mine realize that after that thing, there's another thing and another thing, and we're in constant state of perpetual dissatisfaction with our lives. And we'd never say that out loud. Never. Even those of us whose circumstances look really great on the outside, there's just longing for more. And what we're going to discover today as we open up Paul's letter is that God wants something different from our lives. And that what he wants is not natural. We've got to fight for it. And there's a secret to living in that contentment. So we're going to look at something that takes place between the ears. And I'm going to ask you to open your minds a little bit and not shut me out because you think you've already got it figured out. Because what God's done in my life as I've read this is he's turned my way of thinking upside down. So we're going to look at this idea of contentment, gospel contentment. Contentment that says, God, in any circumstance, you are more than enough for me. And see what Paul has to say to our hearts. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at just a few verses, 10 through uh, 13 today, and then we'll wrap the whole thing up next week. Because next week is really sort of the goodbyes and tell Aunt Helen thanks for the fruitcake and high-five your mom and all those kind of things towards the end of a letter that you do. But this is sort of the last bit of like deep, kind of deep teaching that Paul lays out in this letter, and I I don't want to miss it. So let's take a moment and let's pray, and then we'll open these up together. God, I thank you that um, I don't have any of this stuff figured out. You are constantly working in me. And God, I know that that's echoed through this whole room, that you are constantly working in us and that we haven't figured this out. And that as much as we want to say we're content and happy with our lives, the truth is, God, is that most of us long for more. We long for different. We long for a a better marriage, a different marriage. We long for a better job or a different job or a different car or a different this or a different that or someone or whatever it is. We just are always longing for what's next thinking that somehow what's next will fill our lives. But God, you call us to something different. So Father, as we open your word, what I pray that you do is you penetrate our hearts, showing us that, God, we can live in a contentment that says you are all that I need. All that I need. So penetrate our hearts with that truth, God, as we open your word today. And we ask this in Jesus' perfect and holy name. Amen. So this is what Paul's saying kind of tying it to this idea that he had, we talked about a few weeks ago of, of what we think about matters. And he says this, I greatly rejoice in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. He's talking to the Philippians. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you hadn't had opportunity to show it. But I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to be in plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So contentment is is an interesting idea, and I kind of alluded to our definitions about it, but I want you to understand a couple of really solid truths about it. And the first one's going to seem like a no-brainer, but I want to tell it to you anyway because it's important, okay? God desires for you to live a content life, all right? God desires for you to live a content life. That is a solid piece of biblical truth. 
We can trace it throughout Scripture. God desires for you not to live in a constant state of wanting more. Now, what Paul does at the beginning of this letter is he, he writes, or at the end of this letter, is he's telling the Philippians, Thank you for the gifts that you sent me. Now, if you remember way back to chapter 2, all right, some 15 weeks ago, we learned of a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. And he was sent by the Philippians to bring a gift to Paul, who is in prison in Rome under house arrest. So Paul is waiting trial, possibly waiting life imprisonment or even execution. And he is under house arrest in Rome, and he's being forced to pay for his own house and pay for his own food, but he's not allowed to leave. So the Philippians send this guy Epaphroditus to encourage Paul, and they send him with a gift. Now, we don't know what that gift is, but a lot of people believe that it's monetary. That the Philippians, in the middle of their persecution and poverty, gathered up some resources, and they took them to Paul, and they said, here, use this to pay for part of your kind of house rental and house arrest and jail and food, and it was part of his needs. And so that's not an uncommon idea at all. It could have been something else, but it, it resonates with Paul's situation under house arrest. And they send him these gifts, and then Paul goes on and talks about Epaphroditus and how much he loves him and cares for him and how grateful he is for that gift. And he reiterates that here. He says, listen, I'm so grateful that you had the opportunity to show your concern for me, right, and that you sent me these gifts. But I want you to understand something. I don't need them. It's kind of an interesting turn. He says, I don't need them. I didn't need the gifts that you sent because I've learned something. I've learned to be content. And he goes on to talk about being in plenty and want. Several times in Paul's letter, he talks about the in Paul's letters, he talks about the importance of living content. There is a deep truth in Scripture that tells us that God wants us to be content in whatever circumstance we're in. And not content as in settling and okay, but content as in deep gospel satisfaction that says, God, I'm at peace, which is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a deep kind of understanding that whether you send me these gifts or not, I am okay. And you want to know why I'm okay? And he's going to give us a secret in a minute. But he's saying, I'm okay because God is enough for me. Most of us, while we'd say this truth out loud, we don't believe it with our hearts. We'd say that God is enough. We'd say that we're okay with that. But we're longing for what's next or what's more, how we're going to remedy this situation or, or how this comes to an end. But in the middle of whatever circumstance we're living, we're deeply unsatisfied. But God desires something different for you. God does not desire for you to constantly be in a place where you're saying, God, I want what's more. I want what's next. I need this. I need something else. That whatever the circumstances, whether it's great and plenty and we have all that we need or whether it's in deep want and we're living in deep fear, to be able to say, God, I can thrive here because you are all that I need. That first truth is an essential one. It's a simple one, but it's an essential one. God wants you to live content. So those of you that are, that are running around and racing around in your head saying, this is not quite what I bargained for, what I want, what I long for out of my life, my marriage, my kids, my whatever, my aloneness, whatever it is, my financial situation, my world, my stuff, my things, whatever that is, God does not desire for you to be in a constant state saying, God, I just need more. If I can just get past this right now. God wants you to live content. But here's the key, the kicker to that. Contentment is not natural. The second thing I want you to understand is that contentment is not natural. It's not innate to our Christian experience, which means I don't just meet Jesus, and then all of a sudden everything is great in my life, and even in the most difficult circumstances, I'm like, yes, you are all that I need, because it's not natural. My sinful, selfish nature, right, drives me to always want something else for me. Contentment is not natural. Listen to what Paul says in verse 11. He says this. He says, I'm not saying this because I have a need. For I have learned to be content 
in whatever the circumstance. Paul has learned contentment. It wasn't something that Paul had naturally. He didn't meet Jesus on the road to Damascus and then all of a sudden get it. Paul had to train himself to trust in God and to live in deep contentment. Paul's saying, I'm super grateful for your gifts that are going to make my life better, but I want you to know that I don't need them because I have learned that in whatever circumstance, I have learned in whatever circumstance to say, Jesus, you're enough for me. This is really important because what it means is that if you're feeling a little bit disillusioned with your life, which is where I often find myself, it's okay. It's okay because it's a beginning place to recognize that God has more for me. It's not something we're going to catch overnight. It's something that we learn, that we drill truth into our head, and we say, God, I want to trust you today in this circumstances, because our circumstances constantly change. In the middle of every one of those, it's a battle and a fight to take captive those thoughts and say, God, you are enough for me. Now, what I really want you to see is that there's two types of contentment. There's gospel contentment or God contentment, which is really just kind of a way I phrase it. But it's that kind of contentment that says, I've got a peaceful satisfaction because God is all that I need. And that's what Paul is referring to. This sort of gospel-driven contentment that says, God, you you are my sustainer. You are my joy in every moment, whether I have everything in the world or whether I have nothing. You are all I have, and that is more than enough. That's the gospel contentment. But there's also circumstantial contentment, which is where the majority of us live. Which means as long as the circumstances in my life are going well and okay, I'm content. It's why most of us, when I ask you the question this morning, are you content, we're probably nodding in your heart saying, yeah, I'm, I'm alright. I mean, you know, it could be worse. I mean, I'm doing okay because my circumstances are okay. And our circumstances often blind us from the reality of our deep need. So hear me say that. Our circumstances often blind us from the reality of our deep need. Which means as long as my circumstances are well, I'm employed, I've got a job, I've got a paycheck, things are going well, my kids aren't doing terrible things or whatever, like my marriage isn't awful, I'm okay, I'm content, life is okay. And I'm blinded to the fact that I have deep, real needs for gospel contentment. When I was in college, um, I got invited. Now, I'd only been walking with the Lord for like five or so years. I came to know Christ late in my teens. When I was in college, I got invited to go speak at a little uh, event for at-risk, inner-city, Hispanic teenagers in San Antonio, Texas. And I was at Texas A&M at the time, way back uh, in those days. And I got invited. And I was young. I was a sophomore in, in college. And I got invited to go speak at these events. And putting all my cards out on the table, I was raised in a relatively affluent, upper-middle-class kind of suburban culture outside of Austin, Texas, where, you know, everything that I had was just sort of there. I mean, I, I didn't wrestle with a lot of things, and we had problems and struggles like everybody, but my needs were very different from what I was getting ready to encounter in inner-city, urban, at-risk, Hispanic um, communities in San Antonio. But I got invited to come speak at this event, and, and I was staying at this guy's house, one of the houses of some of the kids I was going to be speaking to, and, and I was sitting there with this, this man, and he was telling me his story. And he was talking to me about the gang life he had been raised in, and the people that he had uh, taken their lives, and the drugs that he had been a part of, and the horrific things that he had done, and the, the deep hurt and regret and shame. And I just listened to his story as he told me this sort of unfolding, kind of mesmerizing tale of death and destruction and sin. And then he began to tell me about his love 
for Christ. Like when Jesus entered into his life and radically turned his world upside down. And he was beginning to explain about how God brought him out of that life and into this new life. And as I sat there kind of mesmerized by a story, I realized, God, actually God just showed me something immediately, and that was this. I had no idea what it meant to be saved. I had no idea. I've been walking with Christ for five years, but my circumstances had blinded me to my own sinfulness. My Christian life was one that was developed out of convenience and out of the people around me. And while I believe it to be very real... I didn't know what it meant to be delivered from something. And this guy was sitting here explaining to me that God had rescued him from the pits of hell. And that his life was completely different. And I didn't long for that. But what God did at that moment that would forever change my life was he demonstrated to me my own need. That I was sinful and ridiculous and broken. And I had a desperate need for Jesus. But my circumstances to that point had blinded me from my own need. And like most of us, I had no idea that I even had anything really to be saved from except for a few bad choices in high school. But what I learned that morning was that my sin was my downfall and that I needed to be rescued. Circumstantial contentment is blinding. Because when things are okay, when life is okay, when affluence and affluence happens around me, I'm oftentimes blinded from the fact that I need to be content with God alone. It's exactly why Jesus says it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's not because Jesus hates rich people, right? Because it's a reality of circumstantial contentment that says as long as I have things, I'm blinded to my own deep need. Now those of you sitting in this room that are saying, well that's good because I'm not rich, you're wrong. You're exactly who Jesus was talking about. Right now, if you're making more than $4 a day, you are in the top 2% of the world's wealth. You're rich. If you're making more, you're extremely wealthy. Most of us in this room would be classified in the top, five, top half percent of the entire population of the world in terms of our wealth. So if you think it's the person next to you, you're wrong. This is Jesus talking to a bunch of disciples that have given up every single thing and had nothing. Anything more than that as wealth. And he says it's more difficult for those people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the circumstances around me blind me to my deep, deep this is the battle that we've got to fight. God, strip my circumstances so that I can see my need for you. And not God, take away my things, okay? But God, show me my deep need because I want to rely on you alone. As followers of Christ, it should be our constant quest to say, God, I want to be with okay with you. Because everyone knows those things are temporary. They will not last. I don't want to be circumstantially content, God. I want to be content in plenty and want, well-fed or hungry. I want to be content with you. With just you. Most of us are content because our circumstances are okay. But when those things get removed, we're left exposed, deeply exposed to the fact that we're not living in gospel contentment. Gospel contentment happens in the good and in the bad. Saying, God, whether I have or I don't, I have you. It's why health and wealth gospel is such a lie. And the health and wealth gospel says that God wants you to be affluent and God wants you to have stuff. And you know why it's a lie? It's because it's often those very things that blind us from our deep need. So what does God do? When we begin to rely on other things, those of you that have been walking with the Lord, God begins to pull those things away. We begin to put our hope and our trust and build up idols and things. God begins to strip those things down. Out of his loving kindness, he pulls them down so that we can see our deep need for Christ and we can see the re reality of how things around us crumble. 
the truth is, is that we are called as followers of Christ to seek gospel contentment. God, I have enough for you. So listen to the secret of this, just to get through this. The secret, Paul says, you want to know the secret how to do this? How to fight this, how to live this way, how to fight for gospel contentment in your life, to push back the circumstances? Right, here it is. And probably the most, the one verse in all of Scripture that's taken the most out of context. Verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You've probably seen it on every inspirational poster or greeting card there is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we usually attach it to some kind of difficult situation, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, Trev, because Jesus is your strength, what you can do is go beat Michael Phelps and the 100-meter freestyle because you can do all things. I would sink like a stone. Like a stone. It's taken out of context. I remember my dentist back when I lived in Austin. Um, he, had a, he had posters on his wall. But the poster that when he laid back in his dental chair that sat right above his thing was a cat holding onto a tree branch, dangling, right? And underneath it it says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I thought, really? That's what God's talking about? Cats can climb trees because Jesus makes them powerful? That's my power cat. And the Thundercats, you know, and they were real. But I mean, the power cat. We take that verse out of context to say, God, I can do anything because you are powerful. Well, God is powerful, yes, but that verse is not applying to that. Listen to how it sounds when you actually read it in context, all right? Listen to this. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever my circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret to being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry or living in plenty or want. I can do everything, or all these things is a better translation. I can do all these things through him who gives me strength. What Paul's saying is not about what we can overcome, but how we can live content in the middle of life's circumstances. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying that I can swim 100 meters or I can run the Oklahoma City Marathon. What Paul's saying is that in the middle of trying difficult circumstances, I can thrive because God is my strength. And not just survive, I can thrive. I can live gospelly content because God is my strength. That's what Paul's talking about. And I find this remarkable because any situation that God allows us to be put in or that he puts us in, we can thrive because he's all I need. No matter how real, how difficult, or how big the struggle it is, we can thrive. And many of us have sat in this room, maybe as married people, and, and said to your husband, you know, I, I love you, but I long for a deeper friendship with another female, someone that can just listen to me. I, I want real friendships. Or, or as a husband, have looked at our, our wives and said, I dislike my life. I don't like my job. I hate getting up in the morning and going and doing this, but I'm petrified to leave it because I don't, I don't know how else I'd provide for you. Or those of you that woke up in the morning and looked in the mirror and said, I hate being alone. I hate it. Those of us that have gone through bills on our desks and said, I can't live this way. If I just had another opportunity to make more money, everything would change. Whatever your circumstance is, however real, however heartbreaking, however the struggle is. This verse is saying that you can thrive in that moment and in that place because God is all you need. No matter how petrified, how scared, or how real that struggle is, Paul's saying God is more than enough. He's more than enough. He's your strength. So whether things are going great or whether they're tensely broken, God is enough. 
That's enough. This will be a battle that takes years of your life to actually conquer. It is not something that's natural. It's a daily fight to say, God, I don't want to give in to circumstances. I don't want to be happy when circumstances are good and broken when they're bad. I want to rely on you all the time in my life. And it's something that you have to ingrain this truth so deeply within your soul that when your circumstances change, you're right up with that truth saying, but God, you are all I need. So two things this morning I want you to see as we walk out of here and as we begin to close our time. If you're living in a place of disenchantment and disillusionment and fear and frustration, that's okay. Because it's a starting place for you to begin to realize that God has something better for you. And I can trust him because he is all I need. The second place is if you're living in a place of just general contentment, ask God, I dare you to risk and ask God to show you how to rely on him alone and not on the circumstances around you. God's not going to punish you, but he's going to demonstrate to you that you can have full life through him right now. Don't believe the lie of your circumstances. They're just temporary. You can't take it with you. Don't believe the lie that when things are good, you're good. And when things are bad, you have to go into a free fall. Paul says, whether in plenty or in want, I've learned the secret, the secret to being gospelly content. I can do it through Christ because he is my strength. Don't let the lie of affluence blind you from your deep need for Christ. This is the truth that we live in, that God did something for us that we can't do for ourselves, which is ultimately the picture of this table that we're going to celebrate this morning. Once a month we participate in communion together, but it's the picture of God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Though I was, I was utterly hopeless and sinful, God rescued me and did the same for you. Though you were lost and dead in your sin, God through the loving kindness and his grace and mercy through Jesus Christ gave us new life through his death and resurrection. That's what we celebrate. That I can do it all because God strengthens me. I can live content in difficult or in triumph because God is my all and he is always more than enough. This table is that picture. It's the picture of of that exact moment that says, God, you are more than enough for me. In fact, You are all that I need and all that I have. As we prepare to take this meal together and continue in worship this morning, let's take a moment and let's pray.